Well, um, if you're here and once upon a time you decided that the local church wasn't for you, or maybe you even went a step further and you decided once upon a time uh, that faith wasn't for you, or maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with the notion of walking away from the local church and maybe even the notion of walking away from faith. I think you picked a great day to be here and I'm hopeful that today or at some point through this series that you hear a reason to reconsider the local church and more than that, to reconsider faith in our savior, Jesus. So I think you picked a great weekend to be here because we're in a series called, We Are the Creek and we're talking about who we are as a church and why we do what we do in the way that we do it. Now, as a pastor and as someone who you know pays attention to what's happening in culture and, and what's happening in the church world, uh, there are things that are just true. They're, they're not necessarily good, but they're just true. It's uncomfortable that it's true, but nonetheless, it's true. And, and as we look at our culture here in the United States, uh, it is an unfortunate truth that more and more people are deciding that the local church is not for them. For whatever reason, they come to a place where they decide that the local church is not for them. They don't fit the local church. The local church doesn't fit them. Uh, maybe they think of it in terms as walking away from the local church. Maybe they think of it in terms as the local church has walked away from them. But more and more, statistics show us it's an actual fact that more and more people are walking away from the local church. But I think it's worse than that because many see the local church as so unattractive that it has made faith seem unnecessary. For some folks, what they have seen inside the local church and what they have heard inside the local church and how they have experienced followers of Jesus or you know, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, but what they experienced inside the local church, it began to erode their faith. And there came a point that not only did they decide to walk away from faith or walk away from the church, but they in turn in time decided to walk away from faith because they looked at the church and the church seemed so unattractive. And over time it made faith seem unnecessary. And that's kind of where we are in this country. And that's where we are, you know, in the church of Jesus in this country. Uh, the sad fact of the matter is that four out of five will leave faith by age 29. Four out of five will leave faith by age 29. Those are people that are raised in the church, people that came to faith in their teenage years or their early 20s, you know, just out of college. But four out of five will leave faith by age 29. And only one out of three of those will actually come back. And so th there's a big problem. And when I think about this, if you're ever curious about why I do what I do or what inspires me to do what I do or what motivates me, it's things like this. To think about four out of five will leave faith by age 29 is absolutely staggering. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it, you don't like it. And here's the fact of the matter. I don't want that to be true of my children. I don't want that to be true of Shepherd. I don't want that to be true of Grayson. I don't want that to be true of your sons or your daughters. I don't want that to be true of your grandsons or your granddaughters or your nieces or your nephews. And beyond that, I don't want that to be true of anyone's children or anyone's grandchildren. But it is the truth and it is what's happening. It's what's happening right now, sometimes beneath our noses, in our families. It may be happening right now where four out of five are gonna end up disengaging from faith by age 29. And tragically, this is just happening more and more. Matter of fact, by 2020, just you know, less than two years from now, by 2020, our country for the first time will be more unchristian than Christian. 
The number of people who claim to be Christian versus claim not to be Christian, there's gonna be more people who claim to be non-Christian in our country than ever before because this is playing out every single day. It has been playing out for decades. It's been playing out for a few generations. And right now we're seeing the fruit of it in our communities, in our families, in our nation. And so it's a big deal because the fastest growing religious group in America is a group called the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, a group of people, when you ask them, what is your faith affiliation? What is your faith affiliation? They would say, I don't have a faith affiliation. They just check none, you know, on the box. Hey, are you Christian? Are you this, are you this, are you that? And they would check the nun box. I don't, I don't claim faith, I'm not affiliated to faith. That is the fastest growing religious group in America. And it's just not happening you know, up north, and it's just not happening further south, and it's just not happening further east and further west. It's happening in our own communities. Right here in Laurel County, over the past 10 years, from the year 2000 to the year 2010, the nuns were up 20% right here in Laurel County. That means 20% people from 2000 to 2010 decided, the church isn't for me, faith isn't for me. That means that 34,000 people in this county of Laurel County have no faith affiliation. They don't claim faith. And then when you put that number on top of the number of people who just don't attend church, that's 50,000 people who today they're sleeping in. They're deciding, ah, no, I don't think I'll go to church. But 34,000 people who claim no faith to give those of you here in London just a little bit of context, that's just about every other person you meet. That's just about every other person you meet that at some point, for some reason, walked away from faith or walked away from the local church. In Whitley County, for those of you that are at our Williamsburg location this morning, over the past 10 years, for those of you in Whitley County, the nuns are up 40%. That means there's been a 40% departure from faith over the last 10 years, which means that 16,000 people claim no faith in Whitley County. Put it on top of the other people that don't go to church, 20,000 people with no church affiliation on any given weekend. That's more than every other person. That's the majority of people that you will come into contact with. And then those of you in Pulaski County, those of you that are at the Somerset location this morning, nuns are up 100% over 2000 to 2010. That means the number doubled, that there is the middle of a mass exodus happening in Pulaski County from people walking away from church and walking away from faith. It means 33,000 people claim no faith, and 40,000 people who just aren't affiliated with church. Now, I hope that bothers you. I hope that bothers all of us. I think it should bother us because sooner or later, those numbers may be your sons or daughters, your grandsons, your granddaughters. It may be your little brother. It may be your little sister. And as we look at these facts, we have to conclude that somewhere along the way, the local church, somewhere along the way, the local church made it harder to come to faith and made it easier to walk away from faith. Now, the local church didn't mean to do that. It wasn't you know, on purpose and it wasn't as though someone called a meeting and said, let's make this as hard as possible. Let's make it as hard as possible to, for people to come to faith and easy as possible for people to walk away from faith. But, but it happened and it is happening. Somewhere, a group of people like us in a church like ours decided unintentionally and without actually verbalizing it, but through actions and through comments and tones and programming and ministry and things said and things not said and things done or things not done, 
made it harder for people to come to faith and easier for people to walk away from faith. And, and here's what I wanna tell you. I don't want that to ever be true of the Creek Church. I don't want that to ever be true of us. I don't want us to ever intentionally or unintentionally to make it unnecessarily difficult for people to come to faith and in turn making it easier for them to walk away from faith rather than holding on to faith. And the reason that I don't want that to be true of us is because it wasn't true of Jesus. Jesus was not in the habit of making it difficult for people to come to faith. And Jesus was not in the habit of making it easier for people to walk away from faith. Jesus showed up in a highly religious culture, just like we live right here in the Bible Belt, right here in Kentucky. Right here we are in the middle of a very religious culture. Jesus showed up in a religious culture that was making it difficult for people to come to faith and making it easier for people to walk away from faith. The religious establishment was enforcing 613 laws for people to keep. Think about that. Some of us can't even remember the Big Ten, but there were 613. And a lot of whether you were in or whether you were out or good standing or bad standing, whether you were you know, excommunicated or whether you were still a member, all of that had to do with how well you did with those 613 things that were constantly and rigorously enforced. And on top of that, the religious establishment created labels for people and categories for people to constantly remind people of whether they were in or out. Because some people were just in and some people were just out, depending on who you were and what you did for a living. They made categories of people to remind people, hey, you're loved, you're loved more, you're loved less, and we're sorry, but we don't think that God loves you at all. And all of these categories existed all the time to remind people you're in or you're out, you're loved, you're not loved, you're loved less, you're not loved at all. And it became an insurmountable barrier for people to turn to their heavenly father. It became an insurmountable barrier for people to take a step in the direction of faith. All of these categories, all of these labels, all of these commands, all of this rigorous legislation from the religious authorities just made being a God follower really, really difficult. And then on top of that, the temple, the temple reinforced all of that thinking. It was the epicenter of Jewish religion. If you were a Gentile, you were allowed outside the temple in the, the Gentile courts. But if you were a tax collector, if you're a prostitute, you know, if you were some other people, you know, shepherds, you weren't even allowed like up on the temple property. But if you were a Gentile and you, you know, you kind of had your stuff together, you were allowed to be in the outer court, you know, the Gentiles. But then if you were a Jewish woman, you could go further than the Gentiles. And then if you were a Jewish male, you could go further than Jewish women. And then if you were a Jewish priest, you could go further than the Jewish men. And then if you were the chief priest, the great high priest, you could go further than anybody. And on the one day of the year, the day of atonement, you got to go in to the holiest of holies behind the veil, the place where God was said to have dwelt. And so their whole system was built around this hierarchy of value. And the more spiritual you seemed to be, the more valuable you were to God, the more loved you were by God. And, and it was constantly reinforcing these barriers that were in place. And then Je Jesus shows up and Jesus turned the whole thing upside down. Jesus turned the whole religious system upside down. He uprooted those barriers. He began to dismantle and to destroy those barriers. And in place of those barriers, he began to build bridges to those who had been told by religion, you're unwanted, you're unwelcome. You're unwelcome, you're unwanted. Jesus went to those people 
and began to dismantle and destroy those barriers and he began to build a bridge to those people to say, you've been told you're not welcome and you've been told you're not wanted, but I am here to tell you, you are not only welcome by God, but you are wanted by God. You have not been forgotten by God, you are loved by God. He knows you by name. He doesn't love some future version of you or some version that you're supposed to be. He loves you. So come on back into a relationship with your heavenly father. And that's what Jesus did. And it turned everything upside down because he destroyed these barriers and he built these bridges. Jesus himself, he spoke of his passion. He spoke of his purpose. And I think that anytime we learn something about how Jesus thought about himself or how Jesus felt about himself, I think that's a really profound thing to discover. When Jesus gives us insight to how he felt about his life here on earth and about his ministry and about his purpose and about what he was passionate about, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, for the son of man, he was referring to himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, if you wanna know what my passion is, it's that. If you wanna know what I understand my purpose to be, it's that. If you wanna know what I go to bed thinking about and I wait and you know, get up early and I, I'm thinking about it, it's that. If you wanna know what I'm really passionately praying about, it's that. Do you wanna know kinda of how I think about my schedule? It's through the lens of that. Everything that I do, my purpose, my passion, it comes back to seeking and to saving those who are far from God. Those people who think they're not welcome, they're not wanted, they're not loved, that they're not good enough. He says, that's who I'm thinking about. That's what's most important to me. That's what I find my purpose in. And if that was true for Jesus, our savior, our Lord, our founder, here's my question to all of us. Should it not also be true of us? Should we not find our greatest passion connected to seeking and to saving the lost? Should we not find our greatest passion to go to those who feel unwelcome and unwanted to say, hey, you are welcome and you are wanted. You're not unloved. You're not forgotten. God knows your name and God loves you just as you are. Should it not be our passion and our purpose? That's how Jesus spent his life, to break down barriers, to build bridges, Around here at the creek, we say bridges are better than barriers. And the reason we say that is because that's how we see Jesus doing ministry in the gospels. On one particular day, we learn a lot about how Jesus did ministry. Matthew, who was one of those tax collectors who had been told, you're not welcome, you're not wanted, you're not loved, you, you, you can't even come to the temple. Matthew writes about it. And Matthew gives us a glimpse to how Jesus did ministry. He shows us how Jesus built bridges how Jesus destroyed barriers. It's challenging, it's convicting, it's inspiring. Because what we learn about Jesus is, the thing that made Jesus so attractive and compelling and nearly irresistible to people who were nothing like him, it may be the very thing that people have found so resistible in us. The fact that we are missing doing ministry the way Jesus did ministry. That there's something missing from the local church that was true of Jesus that's not true of us. That was so, what was so irresistible with Jesus because that's how he did it and that's what he did, has become so resistible about us because it's not what we're doing. And so Matthew, he tells us about how Jesus did ministry and this, this is what he says. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages. Now, 
I don't know how you read the gospels. I don't know how you read the Bible. I don't know how you read the scriptures, but I have a feeling that if you read them, if you don't, you should. But if, if you read them, you probably read them too fast. I think we were told once upon a time just you know, to read for time and to read for speed and get through a chapter. I mean, we ought to just think about what we're reading because Matthew, he, he's given us gold here. I mean, this is, this, is, this is profound. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages and, and what we learn about Jesus and how he did ministry is this. Jesus closed the gap. Jesus closed the distance between God and where the people were. Religious people, religious institutions, legalism, all the things of the such, they are content with a large separation between people and God or the people of God and people. Jesus closed the gap. Jesus closed the distance. He went to where the people were. He didn't say, okay, here I am, I'm from Nazareth. Everybody come to Nazareth. No, he said, I'm gonna go to all the towns and the villages and that's what Jesus did. He took the initiative. Matter of fact, Jesus made the first step. Jesus took the second step. And here's what I find to be true about Jesus in the gospels. He was willing to take all the steps Amen. to get to where people were. He went to places that he, wa he wasn't supposed to go and he spoke to people that he wasn't supposed to talk to. One time we find him in Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They had bad theology. They didn't even worship at the right place. So Jews looked down on Samaritans. They were part of that group. They're out, they're definitely out, unloved. Jesus went to Samaria on purpose to find a promiscuous woman who had been married multiple times, who was in the middle of a sinful lifestyle herself currently. And Jesus went there for the sole purpose to say, you've been told you're not welcome and you're not wanted, but I've come to Samaria to tell you, you are loved, you are welcomed, you are wanted. You need to come back to your heavenly father. And the best way that Jesus, now listen, don't miss this. The best way that Jesus could convince her that God loved her was to first convince her that he loved her. Do you know that the best way that we as part of the church, the Creek Church, do you know the best way that we can convince people that God loves them is to first prove that we love them? Because when you prove that you love them, a real living, breathing person in 3D in front of them, it is a much easier step for them to begin to believe that God who they cannot see loves them. So Jesus said, hey, I wanna to prove to you that I love you, I'm here talking to you. I'm inviting you back to a right relationship. So Jesus did those things. He, he went to places he wasn't supposed to go, talked to people he wasn't supposed to talk to. I mean, he did, he did all that. He went to tax collector's houses. The, the, those were another group that were out. They were, just, they were unloved and they were unwanted, they were unwelcome. Jesus went to the house of Zacchaeus, he went to the house of Matthew. Heck, Matthew threw a party and Jesus was the you know, guest of honor. But not only that, Jesus went to the house of a Pharisee because he was an equal opportunity you know, kind of guy. And while he was at Simon the Pharisee's house, there was a hooker in the house that night, a prostitute. And she opened up an expensive bottle of perfume and she cracked it open and she began to anoint the head of Jesus. And the room went silent and it was scandalous because Jesus even allowed people to touch him that was not supposed to touch him. Simon the Pharisee looks at Jesus and says, um, I thought you were a prophet, but evidently you're not a prophet because a prophet would know what kind of woman this was. And if you knew what kind of woman this was, you would not let a woman like this touch you. And Jesus said, oh, Simon, you don't get God. Let me ask you a question, Simon. If somebody's been forgiven a little and someone's been forgiven a lot, who's gonna be most grateful? And Simon said, well, I guess the person who's been forgiven a lot. And he said, that's the difference between you and her. You think you've just been forgiven a little. 
She feels like she's been forgiven a lot. And what she does is out of gratitude for what God has done for her. And, and he set the whole thing upside down. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine if we ended up at a dinner party, me, you, some of our friends, prostitute shows up, starts wiping oil on your pastor's head. It's awkward to think about. How do you think they felt with Jesus? It's just weird. And he made people so uncomfortable to build a bridge. He compromised his own reputation sometimes to build a bridge. He let other people misrepresent him and misunderstand him at times to build a bridge. That's how Jesus did ministry. No place, no person off limit. It says Jesus went through all the towns and the villages and he taught, he loved to teach in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. News that was so good, it seemed too good to be true. When people saw Jesus coming, they thought of good news because that was his message. Hey, God loves you, no strings attached. Sounds too good to be true, but it's not. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, come on, you're invited. Sounds too good to be true, but it wasn't. No matter how much failure you got, there's forgiveness for it. Sounds too good to be true, especially when you find out it's free. You don't have to work for it. There's nothing you have to do to get it. It's a gift. No matter how guilty you are, there's grace greater than your guilt. Sounds too good to be true. It's good news. I don't care how much of a mess you've made of life, there's mercy. God has mercy for it. Sounds too good to be true. And on top of that, Jesus would say, and oh, by the way, God's not angry with you. I know you think you, he is, uh, you've been told he is, he's not angry with you. He's inviting you back. I wonder how many words down the list is good news when people think about the message of the local church? When people think about our message and think about what we love to talk about and think about what we post on social media, you know, Christians and churches and such. Good news? Would it be number one? Would it be number two? Would it be number three? Would it be number four? Jesus was known for good news and I think we ought to be known as well. When people begin to think it's too good to be true, that's when we know we may just be getting it right. When they say, that's too easy, that's too simple, can't be like that, we may just be rowing in the direction of Jesus because that's what they first said about him. Here, here was Jesus' message when he went around to all of, these, all of these villages and towns. Matthew records it in a later chapter. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus said, get away with me and I will help you recover life because Religion is sucking life from you. I'll show you how to take real rest. Jesus would say, hey, are you frustrated with faith? Do you feel like a failure? Then you need to follow me. He goes on to say, hey, I want you to walk with me and I want you to work with me. And I love this. It may not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. He didn't say work for me. He said, work with me. I'm not, I'm, this is not you doing this thing by yourself. I, I'm going with you. You get that, right? Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love this particular translation of this verse. I won't lay, this is Jesus. No wonder people heard good news. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting for you. Jesus would say, I, if following me ever stops feeling like rest, you're doing it wrong because they were working to get God who already loved them to love them. They were trying to earn God's grace and forgiveness, though God said, it's free. 
They were trying to bargain with God instead of enjoy God. And Jesus said, come on, follow me, it's like rest. You, you've been working hard, you, you've been trying to get God to get you in, you've been trying to climb that ladder of spirituality. If following me doesn't feel like rest, Jesus would say, you're not doing it right. He says, keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Jesus again would say, if following me doesn't make you feel free, you're not doing it right. Or there's something we don't evidently understand. I'm not gonna give you 613 commandments. Jesus said, I'm not even gonna give you 10 because Jesus came to fulfill the law. That covenant is shut, there's a brand new covenant. I'm not even gonna give you two commandments. I'm gonna give you one commandment. And the one commandment is I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Now go, have fun, be free. It can't be that good. It was in Jesus' mind. It was in Jesus' heart. Jesus said, you can go do whatever you wanna do as long as you don't hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. Jesus' one command covers all the rest. It was good news. It was freeing, not constraining. If when people attend our church and people begin to listen to us talk about faith and talk about a relationship with God, if it does not sound freeing to them, if it does not sound liberating to them, if it does not sound like rest to them, in some way we are not communicating it the way that Jesus communicated it. It was good news. And not only that, it says he went through all the towns and the villages and he was healing every disease and sickness. I mean, he was sharing good news and doing good deeds. Sharing good news and doing good deeds. And it goes on, it says, and when he saw the crowds. Now I've been walking around with this text for about four weeks. And, and it has just, it has challenged me when I get out of step with it, it was always right there in my head, but this is so powerful. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, don't miss this. Jesus, he went to where people was, and then he got closer still. He went and he stepped around, and then he stepped beyond. He stepped around and he stepped beyond the labels and the categories and all the stuff. He stepped around and stepped beyond all the barriers that religion had put in place and he got close enough to people to see beyond their sin. He, he got close enough to people where he could peer beyond the dysfunction and peer beyond the addiction. He got close enough that he could see behind all that mess and see a real living, breathing person. He took a personal interest in individual people and he got close enough to hear their stories. See, it's easy to hate on people from far away. It's easy to hate on people on social media, easy to hate on people when you hear them talked about on the nightly news, easy to hate on people from far away. But you do what Jesus did and you get out of your comfortable circle and your little sanctified bubble and you begin to step around and step beyond, and you begin to get close enough to see beyond some of those things, and you get to meet a living, breathing, real person just like you, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna hear their story, and you're gonna start to feel different about them. That's what the Quakers said. The Quakers said, an enemy is just someone whose story we haven't heard yet. You begin to understand, oh my gosh, 
If that had been my life, I'd probably be where you are. If that had happened to me, I, I would have probably made the same choices. Hearing people's stories do not excuse their behavior, but it does explain the behavior. And it makes it easier for us to give grace and to extend love when we hear stories because it deconstructs stereotypes and false assumptions. Jesus got close enough to feel. And that's what we've gotta do. We've gotta get close enough to feel. And that's what the word compassion means. It means down here in the gut. You feel it in the gut. I mean, it, it is visceral. It's compassion and this is powerful. It means you feel for someone. I mean, most of us, I think we know what that means. We, we feel for someone. It's like, oh, I feel for them. I just, I just hate that. Oh, my heart hurts for them. But Jesus got close enough to take it a step further. And it means to feel with someone. You're right there. You're feeling with them. They're broken. You're right there beside of them. And you feel the brokenness. You just don't feel for their brokenness. You feel with them as they're broken. You're right there, shoulder to shoulder. You're there side by side. You're looking them in the eye. You feel with them in the pain of those bad choices and the consequences of their conduct. You, you just, you feel with them, but it's bigger than that. And it's better than that. It's actually a step further than that. It means you feel as that person. You feel for them. You feel with them. You feel as that person because you've gotten so close. You begin to, you begin to really understand what it's like to be an addict, to be addicted, to lose your free will, to want to be clean, to desire to be clean, but you can't shake it. And you get close enough to somebody, you hear their story, you walk with them through it, you'll begin to feel what that must be like. Somebody who's trying to figure out sexuality and you can't understand it and you make your jokes about it and you stand and you know, da 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 da. You get close enough to walk with somebody through that and you begin to feel as that person who's trying to figure out this part of their life. You begin to feel as that person and you have compassion like you've never had before. That's how Jesus did ministry. That is not how the church has been doing ministry in the 20th and 21st century. That's why people find us so very resistible. We may feel for, and at our best, sometimes a few may feel with, but not enough of us are getting close enough to feel as those who are far from God. Jesus stared in, he stared sin in the face and loved the sinner. He stared sin in the, he got, he stared sin in the face and looked beyond and loved the person. That's not the church many of us have experienced. Matter of fact, that may be why you walked away. That may be why you decided that faith is not necessary. But here's what you need to know. The good news of the gospel is that this, that when we could not come to God, he came to us. 
And you know what Jesus did? Jesus became one of us. He felt for us, he felt with us, he felt as us. He was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet he was without sin. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He knows the sting of betrayal. He knows what pain feels like. He knows what rejection feels like. He knows it, and he feels with us. And he has compassion on us all. See, from our perspective, our world is full of mountains and valleys. You can see it better on the screen there. From our perspective, there's high points and low points and sometimes good people and bad people, people who are in and people who are out. But this same earth that we see and experience like this from outer space looks like one smooth ball. And Philip Yancey said, maybe perhaps that's what it was like for Jesus. From our perspective, we see the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, the in and the out. But from the perspective of God, none of us were any different from another. And he was able to look beyond all our stuff and have compassion on us. Do you know there's no high ground beneath the cross? No place that you can stand up and look down on anybody else. We have to get back being known as a people of compassion, real compassion for people because we love them and we get close enough. He says when he saw them, he had compassion. Why? I'll tell you why. And this, this is gonna mess some of you up and you're not gonna like it, but I'm just gonna get ready. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed, they were torn, they were attacked, they were ravaged, they were helpless, they, they were like throwaways, they were like pieces of garbage. When Jesus saw them, he didn't get angry with them. And let me tell you why he didn't get angry with them. He became brokenhearted because that's what we would do if we looked at people that way. You can read the stories on social media, you can hear about it on the nightly news or read about it in the newspaper. A young child, a toddler, brutally, abused, beaten nearly to death. And I don't know how you feel, but when I read things like that, I see headlines like that, I feel rage. I feel such anger. But let me tell you where my anger is never directed, to the one that has been savagely abused. It is to the person that could do such a thing. And I get so angry and I'm like, how could anybody do that? When Jesus looked at people, he saw someone helplessly abused by sin. He saw them as helpless. They didn't do it to themselves. This was sin's doing. This was the power and the manipulation and the domination of sin. This is what happens when sin has its way. And Jesus, he couldn't get angry at the people because he didn't see them as the person responsible. He saw sin as responsible for this. As a horrible, horrible force. Now, you can get mad at all the people you get mad at. Democrats, Republicans, independents, in, out, straight, gay, black, white, whoever it is that you feel the vitriol for, that you feel the anger for, you just keep on going. But know every time you lean into those emotions, you're moving further away from Jesus. Because when he saw what was wrong with the world, he didn't say it's them. He said it's it. It's sin. It's the power of sin. 
It's not the people. They're harassed. They're helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. We got to get back to seeing people the way Jesus saw people because it's not how we've been taught to see people. Then he said to his disciples, guys, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's work to be done. There's a lot of hurting, a lot of pain. A lot of people see the, the faith as unnecessary. So here's what you need to do. You need to ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the field because too few are taking it seriously. Too few are passionate about it. Too few find their purpose in it. We gotta find people who say, my yes is on the table. I, I'm, I'm here, I'm following Jesus to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to build bridges and not barriers to those far from God. And whatever I've gotta do, whatever I've gotta tone down, whatever I've gotta amp up to do that, I want to do that. Because we need to ask God to break some hearts. We need to ask God to give some burdens to break our hearts, to give us burdens, that we would begin to see the way Jesus saw, that we would begin to step around and step beyond, that we would do ministry the way Jesus did ministry. So the question may be for you, what can I do? As an individual, me, you, what, what can I do? Build relationships. You need some non-Christian friends. Get out of the sanctified bubble. Move beyond the wall. Hey, it's great that you got Christian friends, but you need some friends that aren't Christians. You need, you need to build some relationship. Say, I, I don't know any. Get to know some. I don't know what you do. I, I, I don't know. Go hang out. Pull up a chair. Go to Kroger. <laughs> you far from God and need a friend? No, don't do that. But build relationships. Have conversations. Just have conversations about what? Anything. What if they ask me a question I don't know? Say, I don't know. Because then you'll begin to establish trust. And they'll see you as honest. Don't ever trust a person who has all the answers. Do you have all the answers, Trevor? No. Got more questions than answers. Leverage your influence with this person, your new friend, your new group of friends. Seize opportunities. Maybe wait for the moment. It may be a year, maybe two years. Say, hey, would you, you know, I know we've been hanging out for a while. You want to come to church with me? Or maybe seize the opportunity to actually take the conversation and talk about faith. But no matter what, love, man, have compassion, feel for, be with. I mean, go through life and let's build some bridges to people. Because the only way that those who are out there are going to come in here, that's on us. So what can we do as a church? Well, here's our commitment as a church. We believe that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God, Acts 15. Verse 19, and for me, I think for us as a church and as a pastor, as a leader, I'm committed to keep this a safe place for anyone to come and wrestle with whether or not they wanna follow Jesus. A safe place, a safe place for you to invite your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors that you never have to be scared to invite someone to come to our church because you're never quite sure of what we're gonna say or how we're gonna say it. And we wanna keep this a safe place for people to wrestle with faith. And we don't wanna unnecessarily offend anybody except with the gospel. 
And if the gospel is offensive, I can't change that. You can't change that. There are some people in our community, thousands of them, who do not think they're welcomed or wanted. Allison had a young lady recently look at her and say, hey, do you think once I, it was a patient of hers and she was struggling. She says, do you think once I get clean, once I kind of get my life together, do you think they'll let me come to church out there? Are you kidding? You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to, you don't have, you don't have to get everything in. Come on. But that's how people think. That's how the church has made people think. Reason we turn the lights down low because some people walk in church completely nervous and fearful because some of the worst moments and most painful moments and embarrassing moments they've ever had in their life happened in a church. And I want people to be able to come in here and if they want to skate in and skate out without anybody knowing, without any pressure, I want it to be that way because for some people to even show up here, it is a big, big deal. We like to dress down, one, because it's how we normally dress. But we don't want it to feel artificial. We want people to feel comfortable. We want it to feel like people are hanging out. We want this to be a place where you can belong way before you ever may start to believe. We'll even let you serve in some capacities, even if you don't believe. Because we want you to feel like you belong here, that we love you, that we're for you, that we wanna wrestle through doubts and wrestle through questions together. We wanna make it easy for next steps. We wanna keep it simple. In the church that I grew up in, I was horrified at becoming a Christian because it meant I had to walk the aisle. I don't know if you grew up in one of those shirts. I had to walk the aisle at the altar call. We don't do a lot of altar calls because for some people, it's an unnecessary barrier. You don't get saved because of an altar call. You get saved because Jesus speaks to your heart and you say yes. We don't talk about certain things. And we won't. Because it's too easily misunderstood and it becomes a barrier. We're not going to answer every question that people ask of us. Not, I don't. Jesus didn't. You shouldn't. Jesus was asked 183 questions in the Gospels. You know how many explicit answers he gave? Three. You know why Jesus wasn't going to be boxed in? He wasn't going to wear a label. He wasn't going to step in a category and say, I'm this or I'm that. I'm pro, I'm not. He wasn't going to do it. If it cost him influence with the people he was seeking to save, he wasn't going to do it. Say, well, that sounds shady. Well, take it up with Jesus. And in response to those 183 questions, Jesus asked 307 questions back. Maybe we should stop trying to answer everybody's questions and just ask other questions. That's what Jesus did. We're not gonna pick it. We're not gonna be angry. We're, we're not gonna worry what other churches think about us. We're not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do my best not to preach knowing that other preachers will watch me and think I'm doing a good or a bad job or whether I'm good on theology or not or whether I'm being hard enough or on sin or not. Because that's easy to do and we're not gonna do it. 
They couldn't figure out, is Jesus conservative or is Jesus liberal? It's according to who you ask. He was the most conservative among the liberals and he was the most liberal among the conservatives. Well, who was Jesus? He refused to be boxed in. And I think we should be as well. If it costs us influence, why would we? Come on, why would we? If it's wearing the name of a denomination, if it's associating with a certain group or that group or this group, whatever it is, if it costs us influence with people we're trying to reach, if it causes us to lose ground, why, why would we do it? We think about our services. We know they're saints and they're skeptics. And we want both to love it here. We don't want it to go too long, but we don't want it to be too short. We don't want it to be too hot or too cold. We don't want it to be too emotional or under-emotional. We want it to be baby bear's porridge just right. That's how Jesus did ministry. Somehow he fought through the tension of feeling like I have to go here or I have to go there. He just moved in that uncomfortable space that has no name, that has no label. And here's what I wanna to say to us. Let's not allow anything to get in the way of people finding the way. Because future faith hangs on our decision to either build bridges or build barriers. And I don't know about you, whether it's in my preaching, my living, my relationships, my business deals, my extracurricular activity with my kids, my career, my volunteering, my giving. I don't want to ever contribute to barriers that make it difficult for people to turn to God. I wanna do like Jesus. And I want our church to be like Jesus. I want us to build bridges to those who think that they're not welcome, that they're not wanted, and that God doesn't love them at all. That's how Jesus spent his life and that's what he gave his life for. And I think that's what we ought to give our life to. Amen. Heavenly Father, we believe that everybody deserves compassion. We believe that we ought to get close enough to hear everyone's story. God, the way that Jesus did ministry is challenging. It's convicting. God, most of all, it is inspiring. Help us to understand on a personal level how to start building bridges, to be more intentional. Help us to get this right as a church because we believe that no one is beyond your love and no one is beyond your grace. In Jesus' name.